Good morning, I'm James, one of the pastors here, and thank you for being here, joining with us as we dig into these stories and discover something about unwavering faith. I get a request to ask of some of you if you ever think about it. We are actually, because we just do one service on a Sunday morning right now, we were running out of parking lot space, and you might have experienced that parking on the street, finding somewhere to park. There's still some spaces in the very south end of the building. Some of you don't even know we have doors down there, but we do. And there's a giant play structure for kids down there called Discovery Place. If some of you could think about parking there, it would make life a lot easier for people that are lost driving around the north parking lot looking for the missing space. Or, or you could come on Saturday evening when you hear the sermon for the very first time. So. The original version before I had to fix everything I got wrong. So it's kind of like, it's quite, it's quite entertaining really. Unwavering. It's a word that describes the reality of God's people in exile, unwavering in their faith. And yet even more significantly, it describes God's faithfulness to them when they find themselves a long way away. In chapter one of the book of Daniel, we were looking at the challenges of life that these people faced. Things like isolation, a long way from home, from family, from anything that they recognized. Indoctrination, wasn't just learning a new language or a culture. They were being brainwashed into a new way of living and often being tempted in a sense with gratification, capitulate and we'll give you everything your heart desired. And there was all this, so this struggle of identification as their names were taken away and their language and their culture and their history and their story was being erased and they were being turned into something else. In chapter two, we discovered that God is in control. Even though it seems difficult at times, he's in control. There's nothing that's impossible for him. And he's the revealer of dreams and mysteries. He lets people know what's going on, including the amazing reality that he gave this picture of God's kingdom coming on earth that one day we have discovered Jesus is bringing and will bring in all his fullness one day. The rock is on its way. Today we're in chapter three and things become more challenging for these people in exile. The pressure's on. And as we journey with them, we're looking at how to live in a faith-stretching world, how to love in a hostile environment, how to have faith that is unwavering. Daniel chapter 3, I want to read from verse 1. Then King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue whose height was 60 cubits and whose width was 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent for the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to assemble and come to the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. When they were standing before the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, and entire musical ensemble, you are to fall down and worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, and entire musical ensemble, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. King Neb had been dreaming about statues in chapter 2, and now we're in chapter 3, most likely 10 or more years later on, and he actually decides he's going to build one for himself. 
We easily forget. Forget the experiences or encounters we've God we've had. Forget the lessons that we've learned. Nepis forgot God's warning about who he was and about who God really is. He flexes his muscles. He dictates the worship of everybody in his vast empire. And in the process, as we'll come to see soon, he issues a challenge to any God. Who would think that they were greater than King Nebuchadnezzar? This statue that he's built is huge. It's like 27 meters tall or 90 feet. It's mentioned, I think, 10 times in this chapter, but with very few details. You don't really know what it was. The Colossus of Rhodes, one of the ancient wonders of the world, was 107 feet or 32 meters tall, just a little bigger. But Neb's statue, if you look at the numbers in the Bible, is so skinny, it's hard to see how it stayed up unless he had ropes on it or something, or it was an obelisk and not really a human figure. Hard to tell. We don't know. But when the statue was ready, he summoned everybody in his administration, all the government, all of the officials to come to the dedication event. And the list of the elite is mentioned twice. You heard me read them. It's kind of humorous, really. It's a list of all the invitees. Everybody's summoned in verse 2, and literally everybody shows up in verse 3. And by describing their obedience to the king's command, he's really, the author here is trying to tell us something. It's a subtle implication that when the king spoke, everybody jumped to it. He says, jump, they say, hi, hi. He says, bow down, and they're having a competition to see who's the first one on the floor. It's what's going on here. Although, not quite everyone. Before we see who didn't look at bow down, it's really worth seeing the comedy that's in this, if you can look at the Bible that way, I think. The list of guests is presented twice, just goes through this big list, and then you go through the big list again. And then you get this bizarre orchestra. It's measured twice as well. I understand why pipes are there. Nebuchadnezzar obviously had good taste and wanted bagpipes to be at the opening event. That much is understandable. The other stuff I'm not so sure of. I didn't even know what a trigon was. I had to look it up. Anybody know? I only found it on Google. Apparently, it's some sort of weird harp that they had in Babylon in those days. I have no clue about this stuff. A guy called Hector Avilas wrote this. He said, indeed, as soon as the instruments sound, the pagans genuflect en masse before a lifeless image without a second thought. In effect, the iteration of enumerations helps to portray these pagans as a version of Pavlov's dog. They just do what they're supposed to do on cue. It's as though they were all in this competition to try and impress King Nebuchadnezzar. And no wonder. The sing-song repetition says something about Nebuchadnezzar and his idolatry. He makes an image and then begins to see himself as a god, only to discover that there is a god and it ain't him. In a sense, the story is both presented as solemn and sarcastic, with humor but real pressure. A fiery trial is coming and yet the whole thing is a bit of a farce. Laughter reveals the thin veneer of power that King Nebuchadnezzar surrounds himself with, trying to stand against the God of heaven. But the idolatry is real enough and blatant enough too. Ours, on the other hand, is usually a little more subtle when we think about idols that we have. I doubt very many of you have little wooden or stone idols at home. But sometimes when I'm laying on the couch binge-watching Netflix... It occurs to me that the God of entertainment has taken up space in our bonus room. In the glow of the refrigerator eating things I don't need to eat and probably not healthy for me, I might be worshipping at the God of gluttony. Or maybe kneeling down to lace up your runners. You can spot the God of self-image skulking around your shoes. 
Or maybe it's keeping an overnight vigil on Black Friday Eve. And the God of consumerism is in the line there with you. Or singing the praises of Gadget 15.0. Offering your credit card to the clerk. And the God of technology sitting there smiling at you. Food and technology and entertainment and fitness. There's nothing wrong with them. There's nothing bad about any of them. As reflections of human creativity, they're part of God's good creation. Don't hear me wrong saying something else. They're God's gift to us. It's good and right for us to enjoy what God has made and what he has created others who have thought about and made for us to enjoy. They're not our problem. Because idolatry is not really located round about us in a physical sort of way. It lies within. Within. Behind every idol is the self. Ourself. It's the human heart, always reaching for something besides God to satisfy, always looking for one more thing to make us feel content, always stretching for something to take the pain away. In reality, we are created to worship, but we insist in searching elsewhere to do that. Perhaps the most persuasive idol is the God of human autonomy. We worship there. The right to do what we want, when we want, where we want, with whomever we want. We have the right to have it if it makes us happy, and we have the right to dispense with it if it does not. Human autonomy is the God of gods that we here worship most fervently at. Any of it sound familiar? Any of it your story? I think we all struggle with idols of sort and the power of idols is formidable. Everyone bowed down, almost. Verse 8. Accordingly, at this time, certain Chaldeans came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. The usual groveling. Everybody starts talking to King Nebuchadnezzar like this. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears, hears the instruments again, the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, and entire musical ensemble, shall fall down and worship the golden statue. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews who you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men pay no heed to you, O king. They do not serve your gods. And they do not worship the golden statue that you have set up. You might remember these Chaldeans from last week in chapter 2. They were the wise guys that the king had called in to help him when he was having these nightmares and bad dreams. And he asked them to tell him what the dream was and what the dream meant. And they couldn't. They were stuck. They had no idea. Without a hint, they had nothing to say. And the king was pretty mad at them. But then this man, this Jewish man, Daniel, comes along. He asks for a night. He prays with his friends. And God reveals it all to him. And he can go to King Nebuchadnezzar and tell him about the dream. They wanted their revenge. And so they go tattletailing to the king about Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to bow down. My mom used to help me remember these names when I was a kid, calling them, shake the bed, make the bed, and into bed you go. (laughs) You learn something at church. I don't really know if it's revenge or professional jealousy or anti-Semitism. Whatever it was, they had plenty of reasons to be mad. And while the accusation against these three men was malicious, 
It wasn't entirely untrue. They had refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue. And the result was predictable. King Neb was mad. He's furious with them. His anger's as hot as his furnace. And in verse 13 we read, King Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego be brought in. And so they brought them before the king. He has questions, burning questions, literally, for them, for these three guys. After all, he'd promoted them to senior positions in his government. If you like, they're in his cabinet. They're cabinet ministers. Question one, is it true? Their response, that doesn't even deserve an answer, King Nebuchadnezzar. Question two, will you bow down if I give you a second chance? Their response, no, we won't. And as he confronts these three guys, you can see how big Nebuchadnezzar's ego has grown over the years. In verse 15, we read him saying this, If you do not worship, you shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who could deliver you out of my hands? Question three, who could save you from me? I am the God of gods. It's a rhetorical question. He's not expecting an answer. He's not even giving them time to give them an answer. He sets himself up. You see that phrase all through this chapter. He sets himself up just as he set up that big statue. He sets himself up to be more important than his gods and to be more important than their God. He claimed to have unrivaled, unchecked power over his entire world. He didn't want or need them to reply. He was giving them no choice. What would you have done? I mean, it's hard to imagine it being in a situation like that. I get it. But what would you have done, do you think, in the heat of a moment like that? It's hard to think what you might say or do. I could see how we could be tempted to rationalize a little bit. Convince ourselves, well, it'd be okay to bow down just this one time. Let's get it over with. I know it means breaking two of the Ten Commandments to have no other gods and not to be having idols. But like, we'll just get it over and done with and move along. Or I guess you could practice what sometimes ethicists will call situation ethics. And in this situation, perhaps it would be right to be right to bow down. Because after all, we're all going to die if we don't. And surely that's not God's plan for our lives, just to get our heads chopped off or burnt to death. Or maybe we could think about it in terms of our culture. The Babylonians don't understand us. They don't understand the laws of our God and the ways of our people. We don't want to offend their culture because then they'll never listen to a thing we should say. So maybe if we just bow down now, they'll listen to us later. Anyway, who's going to see? Maybe some of them could lean on forgiveness and go, you know what, I know this is wrong, it's terribly wrong, but God's going to forgive me. We say that sometimes, don't we? I know what I shouldn't be doing this, but nevertheless, I'll pray later on. Jesus will forgive me, that's how it works. And that's true, God does forgive his people. Jesus did die to pay the penalty for our sins. But I think we misunderstand something about God and his grace. When we begin to pin our behavior on the basis of he'll forgive me later on once I've done what I wanted to do. It reveals a deeper problem inside our heart when we think that way. Hebrews 12 says this, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Maybe some would choose to make a silent protest. Look, we'll kneel down on the outside, but on the inside we're still standing up. And God will understand. I remember actually one of our kids doing that one time. I can't remember which. It would have been fun to be on the phone with them today. When told to sit down, and I always remember the little voice saying, Back, I'm standing up on the inside. And how did the friends respond? The three guys? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verse 16, answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to prevent, present a defense to you in this matter. 
If our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O King, let him deliver us. But if not, let it be known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. That's quite the response. If our God is able. For some that feels like a troubling response. Does it mean God is able to deliver them? But they're not sure if he will because, well, who knows why? He's got his own reasons. Or does it mean they're not sure God could actually do it? It's hard to say. But regardless the response is, they will not bow down and worship to the idol. The sentence structure in Aramaic, remember we talked about the center part of this book is written in a different language, Aramaic. The language structure is not clear here. But it doesn't mean that God is helpless in the face of King Nebuchadnezzar. It does mean they're not sure. After all, the God of the impossible had allowed them to lose and been taken off into exile. And they've been living this terrible life for part of the time, at least, in Babylon. They're not so sure. God may not have lost control, but it didn't feel like that to them. But as you keep reading your way through the stories of Daniel, you'll be reminded again and again of God's power. Our God is able. He is able. But for now, their response, look at it. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. But if not, regardless of what God does or doesn't do, they will not bow down. Even when their faith perhaps feels a little weak, they choose to remain faithful. They were unwavering in their faithful commitment and obedience to God. They have faith in God, even when acknowledging his sovereign freedom, not knowing what he will do. We won't bow down to your silly statue, Nebuchadnezzar, come hell or fiery furnace or high water. We will be faithful to what God has taught us, to have no other gods and not to be bowing down to graven images. And yes, they were well aware that God had rescued his people from Israel and drowned all of Pharaoh's hordes in the sea. And they knew that God provided daily manna to God's people wandering lost in the wilderness so they would have food enough. And they could recall God tumbling down the walls of Jericho as they entered into the promised land. And they could smile at the story of God dropping that huge, gigantic Philistine with one stone to his head. Because God can. He can reconcile a broken marriage. He can liberate people and free us from our addictions. God can heal broken bodies. God can provide for our deepest needs. God can soften and change hearts because our God is able. But they didn't presume upon God. In humility and in faith and obedience, they simply said, but if not. They gave their allegiance to God regardless of what he might or might not do for them. But if not, they were unwavering. By now, we all kind of know that Neb is not the sort of guy you trifle with. He's way past burning questions now. Verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar was so filled with rage against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face was distorted. 
He ordered a furnace heated up seven times more than was customary and ordered some of the strongest guards in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. And you can just see his face turning purple. And you can see the sense of comedy in this still, even in the harsh reality. He wasn't interested either in what their God might or might not do. He simply knew that they would not bow down and he became unglued. He was so upset. He ordered the furnace cranked up. It's like a competition, I think, between the furnace and the king as to who could possibly be the hottest and out of control. And in fact, the soldiers that would bind the three guys and toss them in, they all lost their lives approaching the furnace door, we're told, because it was so hot. And I know how hard it is to think, well, what would I do? It really is. We don't live in a comparable situation whatsoever. But we do serve a God who makes it real clear to us that life is not necessarily easy. Just because you choose to follow Jesus doesn't give you the get out of jail free card and everything will be fantastic. He never, ever promises you that. In fact, Jesus' friend Peter once wrote this in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's sufferings so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, is resting on you. Following Jesus can be costly. You only need to recall the image of Christians kneeling in orange jumpsuits at the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. And what happened next? Faith standing before the fire knows that God will not always bring a miraculous deliverance for his people. That's not always his plan. But he always will be there to give grace in our time of need. And it's at this point that the story begins to shift. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And rose up quickly. He said to his counselors, was it not three men we threw bound into the fire? And they answered the king, true, O king. He replied, but I see four men unbound walking in the middle of the fire and they're not hurt. And the fourth is the appearance of a god. King Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and said, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out here. So Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego came out from the fire. Neb had been waiting to witness firsthand their horrific death and was astonished by what he saw. Four people in the furnace. He's even asking to be sure. We put three in, yeah, nobody else by mistake, just three. Now there's four and they're walking around as though they're having a stroll on a summer's day and the sun's come out. They're unbound, they're unharmed and most surprising, the fourth person looks like a god or a son of a god or an angel. I'm well aware that lots of preachers will tell you that this is Jesus in there with them. I get that. The text itself never says that. It clearly points to something divine going on, divine intervention. It clearly tells us that in their moment of greatest need, somehow, in some way, God is present with them helping. He showed up. The ordeal was an opportunity to witness God's power. And while you can't simply conclude that Jesus is in there, We can say with confidence that Jesus is our Emmanuel, God with us, the God who shows up. 
His name is Jesus, the one who saves and comes to rescue. That's who he is. The God who saves is with us. Do you know him? Have you met him? Have you placed your trust in him? Have you offered your life to him? Have you asked and experienced his forgiveness and grace? Have you surrendered all you know to him? Have you turned your life around? Do you know for sure you're part of God's family? Is God's Holy Spirit living within you? I'm fairly certain that they were hoping and praying that God would deliver them from the furnace. That's what I'd be doing. But in reality, he delivered them in the furnace. Jesus in the garden, before his arrest, he prayed to his Father in heaven to be delivered from the agony of the cross, Matthew 26. Going a little further, he threw himself in the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. Jesus was not delivered from the cross. He bore our sin and shame on that cross. He died, and in doing so, he broke the power of sin and hell and death over our lives. He was not delivered from the cross, but by his death, he delivered you and me. We might not always escape something terrible happening. There's no promise of that anywhere in your Bible. But we do have the promise of God's presence. We have the promise of sufficient grace. We have the promise of Jesus. And once we understand that God's delivery and grace comes in different ways, we begin to, I think, understand some of his promises in new ways, in fresh ways, more real ways. Isaiah said this, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. Perhaps it helps us to understand the Apostle Paul's words when he says, In all things, we are more than victorious through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But claiming these promises might mean praying something like this. Lord, I believe you are able to protect me and my family from all danger or illness or accident and death, and I'm praying that you will. But if not, I will not bow down and serve the gods of bitterness and resentment. And Lord, I believe you're able to preserve my reputation and my job if I take a stand for what's right. And I pray you will. But if not, and I lose everything, I will not serve the God of cowardice. And Lord, I believe you're able to open the door so I could get that job or that opportunity or that ministry or that new home or move to this new place. But if not, and I'm just walking lost in the dark, I will not bow down to the God of despair. Lord, I believe you're able to help me find a life partner and to enjoy being together, perhaps even having children. I pray that you will, but if not... I will not bow down to the gods of self-pity. We pledge our allegiance to the God of heaven and to no other God. 
I have no illusions that trust like that is hard. I really don't. So often we say to ourselves, look, I've trusted you, God. I've given you my best. I've given you my life. I've done everything you asked. I've poured myself out for you. I've tried really hard to follow Jesus. And I only asked you this one time to do something for me. I just needed you to show up this once. Where have you been? What's the point? You ever been there? At a graveside? At a hospital bed? Staring at an MRI image? In a courtroom, walking out the door with your box and your final payslip, handing over the keys to your home, holding your cell phone, waiting for a call that never comes. Can you say, but if not, there's a burning question. How do we live in a faith-stretching world? How do we love in a hostile environment? How do we have faith that is unwavering? We discover that all of these are rooted in who God is, not who we are. It's not so much the believer here as the believed, the one that we believe in. It's not their faith that changes everything for them. It is the one in whom they have placed their faith. It's a faith in God that can move mountains, not a faith in faith. It is... The circumstances that, while difficult, do not determine what's what. They don't determine what God can or cannot do. He is the God in heaven who is the God of the impossible. But it's learning to love God for who he is, his person, not for what he can do, his performance. But that means, like these three guys, we need to learn to focus more on God's goodness than God's power. Because he's a good God, I can learn to trust him with all things. Because he's a good God, he knows what to do even when I don't. He knows what's best. He is good. And his love endures forever. And when we discover that, we discover a faith that can be flexible enough for the good times. And those very, very difficult times as well. I don't need the circumstances to adapt to me when I've discovered the God who strengthens me and gives me the strength to adapt to and overcome the circumstances. Today we're going to celebrate communion. I hope you received one of those little cup things on the way in. If you didn't, you need one, you just raise a hand. Someone will get you one real quickly. Or if you've got a gluten intolerance, we have gluten-free wafers as well. Just raise your hand, someone will help you. We celebrate communion as part of what it means to remember Jesus. But listen to this. Paul the Apostle wrote this. For I received from the Lord that I handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night he was betrayed took a loaf of bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body. That is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore, listen to this, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Maybe this morning we all need to take a moment to examine ourselves. And it's hard to do to see in our own hearts and minds. I know that. But maybe you could ask yourself this. Are there any idols in my life? Are there any idols in my life?
Am I only in it for what I can get out of it? I only hang out with Jesus because he does stuff for me? Can I really say? Can I really say? But if not, we're going to take a moment for quiet reflection. I'll lead us in prayer and we can partake of the bread and the wine together. Pause. Search the inside. Answer the question. Can you say, but if not? Father, thank you this morning for your amazing grace. Thank you that Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. Thank you that you are the God of the impossible and the one who can do far more than we could ever ask or imagine. Thank you for your grace that changes us and makes us to become like Jesus. Thank you that he gave his life for us, that we could be forgiven and made new and set free. Thank you for the courageous grace you give to us sometimes when it's not what we want, but what you want. Thank you for helping us have the courage to pray, but if not, thank you that you are always with us and that you are for us. And as we take these simple elements to remind ourselves again of Christ, May we discover in eating and drinking that he is Christ in us, the very hope of glory. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Your little container should peel off at the top. and There's a tiny cracker, hardly a loaf of bread, but a tiny cracker in there. But it tells us something. The body of the Lord Jesus Christ was broken for you. Let's eat and be thankful. Christ's blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. We drink and celebrate to our King. Father, thank you. We deserve nothing. And you've given us so much. Thank you for Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our King.